Warning, some things in our podcast may not be suitable for everyone. We talk about cults and murders, and due to the nature of our podcast, may use harsh language at times. Viewer's discretion is advised. And also, we can't pronounce anything. All right, guys. How are we doing today? Welcome to Cults and Crime, and we are getting dangerously close to Christmas. So after this one, we will be trying to talk more distinctly about Christmas carols and things of that sort, of course. Just joking, we're only going to talk about murder. Yeah, guys, I'm sure you're tired of cults at this point, so we're getting into a good old-fashioned murder. All right, guys. So if you follow our Instagram, at Cult and Crime Pod, then you know that I was recently went to Fort Lauderdale, Florida to join a cruise ship. And when I got back, we had like a lot of time to kill. So with a quick Google search, I booked a trip to see the famous Everglades. For anybody that doesn't know what the Everglades are, it's actually 1.5 million acres of Wetland National Park. These wetlands are home to hundreds of animals like alligators, turtles, even iguanas. And turns out by my lovely tour guide, it's a dumping ground for unwanted pets, such as pythons and even piranhas because it's totally normal to have a piranha as a pet. So the way that he described it to me, he had said basically that they had, a, you know, people would put piranhas in their fish tank because they wanted something exotic, and all of a sudden, there's no more fish in the fish tank, just piranhas. So they would dump their piranhas in the wetlands thinking that alligators and that kind of thing would eat them. I am incredibly confused. These people got piranhas and did not expect them to eat their fish? Apparently, Jamie. I'm not a person that's stupid enough to put a piranha in my fish tank, but apparently it happened because they had a huge piranha problem. See, I'm, in my head I'm thinking, okay, so how much work is it to go get this exotic animal that I'm sure you need licensing for? Jamie, I can almost guarantee you they didn't license these piranhas. Oh, there we go. That's my problem. I always think, like, how could you do this legally? People don't do things ah. legally. My bad. Sorry, continue. See, the reason I'm talking about this is because the Everglades are more for a dumping ground for animals. Listverse.com has the Everglades ranked number four, the most popular place to dump a dead body. This is likely due to the alligators. My tower guide over at Holiday Park told me they only eat every couple months and it takes months for them to fully digest each meal. So not a good place to dump a dead body, guys. But anyways, with the Everglades being so vast and filled with a bunch of vegetation, bodies can hide there for years without even being found, leaving them unidentifiable. But this brings me to the case where the body was found and identified. This is the case of Jeanette Smith. Orlando Martin and his 12-year-old son had packed up all their gear and drove out to the Everglades, in particular Alligator Alley, for a day of fishing. Just after 7.30 a.m., they walked through an empty parking lot heading for the docks and a little secret fishing nook that only locals would know about. Casting their reels into the dark brown water, by the way, the water is only about three feet deep, but it's so murky that you can't see the bottom. And after a couple casts, they noticed something weird in the water. A brown and blue package made out of cardboard wrapped in duct tape, and it had washed on shore. The package was about three feet long and two feet wide, with makeshift handles made out of the duct tape on each side. Eyeing the package as he continued to fish, curiosity got the better of him, and he wanted to check it out. And as he started walking towards the package, another fisherman warned him, don't go over there. But he didn't listen. Grabbing the water-soaked cardboard and attempting to lift it out of the water, it broke, dripping the contents into the water, revealing a wrinkled corpse of a woman. This woman was tan and bent in half with her thin arms tied behind her back with white cloth. 
She was only wearing a backwards Calvin sweater and an anklet with the name Jeanette on it. After the autopsy was completed, it was found the body had been brutally sodomized and was beaten, bruised. The bruises were all over the woman's body, including on her legs, breast, and she had torn cartilage on her neck, showing the cause of death to be strangulation. The autopsy also showed an unknown semen sample on Jeanette's mouth. The investigators took a photo of the body to local bars and nightclubs to see if anyone could identify her. It was there, at the Dollhouse, which is a local strip club, where the bouncer identified her as Jeanette Smith. Jeanette Smith was the youngest of three girls born in a strict Catholic family in Queens on Christmas Day. Her mother was a special education teacher, and her father was a lighting technician. When Jeanette was in the first grade, she had these adorable dimples that I'd always wanted and this bob haircut. The neighbors claimed that she always had a smile on. Jeanette's mother wouldn't allow Jeanette to ride bikes with the neighborhood kids because, and I quote, I always had a premonition I was going to lose her, end quote. But I don't think the protectiveness of the parents stopped her. By the fourth grade, she started to get boys' attention and even came home from a 10-year-old's birthday party telling her mother there was, there was a black boy and a red-headed boy at the party and no one wanted to dance with them, so I did. She also had a bunch of friends that were mostly guys, which didn't go too well in her school with the girls, and, but mostly, like, you know, all middle school girls. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, there's nothing worse as, like, a middle school girl is seeing some other girl get way more attention from boys than you are. Exactly. And that didn't slow down. By high school, Jeanette was incredibly smart, and she had, like, almost straight A's. She received all kinds of attention for boys. Her good looks would often get her stopped in the streets, and she would constantly be told that she should be a model. Jeanette really did take this to heart. She started wearing more makeup, and she started wearing tighter-fitting clothes everywhere she went. But in 1991, her father lost his job, and the family started to really feel the strain. And that really didn't help Jeanette much. She had just started seeing a guy named Jason Rodriguez. He was supposedly ridiculously handsome and a bodybuilder to boot with a bad boy attitude. By the end of high school, Jason was arrested and he went to jail. But Jeanette stayed with him even though there was a daily arguments once he got out and reports of physical abuse. Oh, I hate that. Like, ladies, just an FYI, if your man's going to jail, maybe take a step back. Yeah. Well, and then this just kind of snowballed for Jeanette. With money being really hard in her family with her dad losing her job, she began working as a dancer for a small strip club, but quickly became popular and moved to a high-class club called The Dollhouse where their special was a shower show where a customer could pay for a private dance where the girl would bathe with the man. Jeanette danced under the name of Jade and was reported to walk away with almost $2,000 a night. And with no other way to make that kind of money, Jeanette got addicted to the lifestyle she was awarded and the help she was able to give her family. See, her mom knew that Jeanette was dancing as a professional, but her father did not. And Jeanette would often take her mother shopping for the things they needed around the house. Neither her mother or her sister really agreed with their lifestyle, but Jeanette really couldn't walk away when she was making all that money. The whole thing's really sad, you know? Like, you should never be shamed for doing what you need to do, regardless of what you're doing. You know, you're paying for your family stuff, but there's also this shame because she grew up Catholic. So there's this deep, deep shame that you're doing things you're not supposed to be doing, but then you have to because you just want to pay bills and make sure people are fed. It's just a really, I can imagine that being really hard on her. Oh yeah, I can totally understand that. So when the police asked the bouncer at the nightclub when was the last time they saw Jeanette, aka Jade, they informed him that the last time he saw her was March 19th, 
where he escorted her and a tall, well-dressed man to Jeanette's car. This man had singled out Jeanette almost immediately, giving her several hundred dollar bills throughout the night. He was tall with a muscular build and wore a suit with his arm in a cast, and right above the cast, a bulldog tattoo with the inscription saying United States Marine Corps. Kind of reminds me of the Ted Bundy thing where he would lure girls away being like, oh, look, my arm's broken. Please help me. Yeah, I could totally see it. His arm was actually broken. Okay. He had ordered Johnny Walker straight at the bar with a Budweiser on the side. At one point, he got into an argument with a regular and almost got kicked out of the bar. Photographs from security cameras were taken around town, and it wasn't long before Ariel Hernandez was identified. Ariel was originally from Cuba. He was an immigrant that ran away from home when he was just 17 and joined the Marines. He had left the Marines in 1991, and Ariel had started finding himself in several run-ins with the police. 22 to be exact. Oh, wow. That's, that's quite a rap sheet. Oh, yeah. The rap sheet included arrests for aggravated assault, stalking, battery, and third-degree burglary. Oh, so very, fairly violent things. Yeah. And however, with no evidence that Ariel was involved, other than knowing that they got in the car together, detectives wanted to play it smart and not speak immediately with Ariel and spook him. With his ties in Cuba, they were afraid anything would send him running if he was ever involved. Well, that and when you're working a case, you can't actually use someone's past in order to say that they did the crime. You know, some guy could beat his wife 25 days in a row, get caught every single time, plead guilty... But as a cop, you're not supposed to look into your records when you're talking to them, because it's going to make you biased. That's when local law enforcement got contacted by the FBI. They had a wiretap on Ariel's phone at the local hotel he was staying at. Why did they have a wiretap? Well, by 1996, Ariel began making his own counterfeit check operation and ran it out of the mob-owned hotel called the Beachside at Mario's. Ariel would then use the counterfeit checks to buy expensive electronics and then sell them. Was Ariel part of the mob, or was just like a friend of the mob? He was affiliated, but not in the mob. Okay. Or this is all, I guess, speculation, which we do all the time. Speculatively speculating. <laughs> Ariel would later claim to make over 15k a week doing this. Detectives were able to search the hotel room four days after Ariel checked out and found the hotel used the same exact type of white towel that was used to tie Jeanette's hands behind her back. They also found several sharper image Sony stereos, which one of them matched the same serial number to the same cardboard box that her body was found in. Oh, that's, that's, no, it's good. It's, that's good circumstantial evidence. Yes, I agree. Um, police also found several drops of blood and collected those samples. The very next day after the search of the hotel room, the police received an anonymous phone call. The caller, however, sounded very familiar. Do you want to guess who? Was it Ariel? Yes, it was. It sounded just like Ariel Hernandez. Surprise, surprise, guys. Only the stupid ones get caught. Ariel claimed to know exactly what happened to the girl in the box. He said two men had tortured the woman by sticking bottles, walking sticks, or whatever into her anus and forcing them to perform oral sex. The two men had then murdered her. But how would you know that unless you were there? Good question. Well, the police didn't buy this at all. And they tracked down Ariel to a small apartment where his girlfriend, Tammy Bumble, lived. He had a girlfriend the whole time? Yes, he had a girlfriend the entire time. Well, you know, murderer, but also cheater. Yes, sleazy. Sleazy! Well, just, you know, list all the things. Check fraud, cheating on his girlfriend, murdering poor Jeanette. Like, this guy is just not a winner. 
They started interviewing Tammy, where she immediately broke down into hysterical tears, claiming that Ariel, after seeing the body being discovered on the TV, had admitted to her that he was the murderer. Oh my gosh, poor Tammy. Right. They immediately took Hernandez in and questioned him, and he'd give them three separate stories. Like, I feel like that happens all the time, by the way. Oh, it does. It, even if people are telling the truth, their story could change a little bit. So just, it depends on how much it changes, how pleased judge whether or not it's truthful or not. You know, in your own gut feeling, of course. Well, I think these stories change a little more than a little bit. So, the very first one, he had agreed that he'd left with Jeanette, but it was then dropped off down the street where he was followed by a suspicious vehicle. The second story was that he did take her to the hotel, but he never went inside. He claimed that two other men had sodomized Jeanette with a wine cooler and then strangled her with a belt. How would he know unless he saw it happen? Well, eventually, he confessed that he paid Jeanette $500 for sex. And when he got on top of her, he had placed his hands around her throat at her request. But when he placed his hands around her throat, he heard a crack and she started gasping for breath. So, with a confession in hand, Ariel was not done. He still needed to be interrogated for the check fraud. They decided to leave Ariel alone in the interrogation room. While he was alone, he began to rub his groin and grow aroused. That's when he started pleasing himself and he'd finished in his hand. Wow, this guy really, really is just not a good person. Just, just sleazy. Well, sleazy. You know, I can only imagine that after recounting everything he did to her, that's when he grew aroused and decided to please himself, which is absolutely disgusting. Like, thank goodness they caught him, because if that's the case, he would have done this again and again. It's, you know, this wasn't already something that he's done before. Exactly. Well, after he'd finished, Errol calmly walked to the nearby trash can and ran his hand against the trash. That's right. Leave all that evidence for police. Yeah. And then he returned to his chair like nothing had happened. Of course, the police are watching. And they later collected the samples so they could test it to the semen found in Jeanette's mouth, which obviously came back as their exact match. There you go. Ariel was booked for murder and the federal charges of counterfeit checks. In his prison cell, he bragged about what he did to Jeanette, telling a fellow inmate, quote, that bitch deserves it for sucking a stranger's dick, end quote. And then telling- You know what's really annoying? What? You can get your dick sucked- Sorry, guys. You can get your male members sucked, and you're a good guy, but the minute a girl sucks your male member, all of a sudden she's a hoe, she's a slut. Like, takes two to tango. Right. And he'd even told a separate inmate that she was sucking my dick and just choked. That's also a quote. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure she did on your little pencil, bud. So, I'm going to speculate really wildly for a second. I feel, in my heart of hearts, that what happened was... She, he had paid her for sex, and he was too quick and finished in her mouth, and, and she wanted all of her money. And he had felt like he didn't have to pay her because he never actually had sex with her, and that's when he killed her. And that's my personal opinion. Or he planned it ahead of time, and he knew he wanted to kill a girl. So he picked her, she went home with him, They he probably forced her to give him... Even though they had agreed on, but he liked the forced aspect of it. So he forced her to do it and then killed her after because he got what he wanted. Yeah. Both those, for me, work. Pride for the state charges, the federal government stepped in. And Angel, along with nine others, were, were charged with attempted murder, passing counterfeit checks, racketeering, and 15 accounts of bank fraud. 
This, by the way, was an attempt to bring down the Mafia. Do you remember how I had said that he was running his counterfeit check operation through the Mafia? Yeah. So, because of that, they decided to go after the Mafia as a whole and try to bring down the whole system instead of just going after Ariel. Yeah, well, the federal government's pretty well known for going after the big fries and looking over the little ones. Yeah, exactly. Once in court, Ariel declared he was coerced into his confession, calling the whole thing a scam, in a courtroom packed with mobsters, they wouldn't even lay an eye on him. The the Miami New Times did an interview with Ariel in prison, and I'll read this part of the article. He'd asked the reporter, are you interested in the truth? See, his time in prison wasn't going well. He had been stabbed several times by Shank on March 11th. Then, while in the hospital wing, he threw a metal phone at a nurse before assaulting a prison guard. This to him, by the way, was, and I'll quote, a little bump in the road. Well, of course, after murdering someone. Well, a little bump in the road to him trying to, conf- trying to prove his innocence. He had grown obsessed with proving that he was innocent. His single cell is filled with stacks of documents. He contends it was someone else that killed her. He left the hotel room to buy cocaine and came back to see her dead. He disposed of the body due to the cocaine and mounds of stolen electronics in the hotel room. He says that the most crucial evidence is flawed. This was the phone tap recording with a mob member named Masaro, where he says, Uh, listen. Things got a little messy yesterday. I tied up the loose ends, and I got a package to get rid of. Oh man, I haven't slept. To which Masaro replied, I don't know, I'll talk to you in person. Ariel claims the package wasn't gin at all, but bonus checks. Ariel refused to plead deal for life in prison due to the fact he believes he's going to walk free. The hearing didn't include the Bombino family. Masaro died in prison after kidney and heart failure. Ariel Hernandez is serving life in prison, but it's not the charges you would think. After the charges with the federal government, he had only agreed to sexual assault charges for Jeanette, which to me is injustice. That's really hard because... So the government has to, the local government has to weigh, you know, the costs per the court system versus like how much time you're going to be able to give him. If he already has life in prison, it doesn't really make sense for them to charge him because it's going to cost them, you know, thousands upon thousands of dollars, you know, money they could use to try to convict someone who doesn't have any prison time. Yeah. And from a financial standpoint, I do understand, but from an emotional standpoint, a human's life should be way more important than this. Now, I I agree. It's just one of those really, really sad things where if I'm sure if the you know, defense attorneys, well, not, I'm sure if the prosecutors had all the money in the world, they would go after every single person and give them the max sentence. But that's just not what's happening. They have, you know, 50, 60 cases on their desk. And a lot of times they just want to plead things down to get them off the desk because they are so overworked. Alright guys, so that's the end of our episode. We have a couple good announcements for you guys. The first thing is, we are officially launching our Patreon. That's right guys, if you love cults and crime, but you hate all the commercials, you can head over to Patreon, and we'll give you the link on our Instagram, Cult and Crime Pod. And then as a very special gift to our very first Patreon listener, we are going to give you a free... Cults and Crime sticker. 
But don't worry, if you just want one of those stickers, we are gonna start having them for sale. So for the whole month of December, we're gonna actually run a special and we're gonna have that on our Instagram as well. But hold on tight because Jamie's gonna let you know what we're gonna be talking about next week. I'm covering the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, better known as the Hippie Mafia. All right, guys, so tune in next week to learn about the Hippie Mafia, that is. All right, I'm actually really excited. This sounds really interesting. I know a lot of people are gonna really love this and a lot of people might not, but we'll see. I think this might be a mom favorite. (laughs) This might be a my mother-in-law favorite, so we'll see. (laughs) All right, guys, we'll see you Monday. Hey, cult and crime fans. If you like listening to us discuss charismatic leaders and husbands who definitely did it, then one of the easiest ways for you to support us is by subscribing to us on whatever listening platform you're using and giving us a five-star review. We love all of our listeners. Production by Jamie. Production and editing by Nicole. Our intro music is Wrong by Dan Henning. Our background music is In Albany, New York by the 129ers.